Alright. Good morning. Alright, so we are looking at church history, obviously. And uh, we're hoping that today we don't have the technical problems that we had last week. So just just have to see. Of course it will help if my notes actually come up. time period where we've we've been going through a time of revolution. We went through a time where people were just kind of bumping into each other saying, I think you're doing this wrong, I think you're doing this wrong. Now we're starting to get to a point where people are getting a little bit more militant about that. I think you're doing it wrong, and, and I know how we really should do things. For good and for bad. So, 1855, last time we ended with talking about D.L. Moody. In 1855, D.L. Moody is converted in Sunday school. So, Born to a poor family in Massachusetts that got even poorer after his father died, and he was raised very frustrated, very undereducated, and decidedly Unitarian. So, not what the kind of person you'd say, oh, he's going to be a great evangelist. What with, what with not believing that Jesus is God, and not believing that there's much going on in life, and not having much of an education. Luckily, his family had no money which meant that he had to look around for a job, and he finally ended up having to go to Boston to work at his uncle's shoe store, because nobody else would take him, because he's kind of a twerp and undereducated. And he went through a series of job interviews and got turned down, because it's D.L. Moody, he's not much of anything, he'll never amount to anything. So, family couldn't afford to take a kid and send him to Boston, works in his uncle's shoe store, but his uncle said, all right, one stipulation, if you're going to work for me, you're going to go to Sunday school, you're going to church yourself up a little bit, because I don't want, I don't want, somebody with your attitude and your background working in my shoe store. So, the local congregationalist church I go to, you're going to go to Sunday school there. Then I'll let you work with me, but that's what you got to do. And you say, okay, fine. After attending the class, Moody accepted Christ. Because if you remember, Sunday school was designed as an evangelistic tool, right? It's to teach people about the Word of God. It's to teach people how to read and write, give them some education. But specifically, to reach out to the lost who don't have another opportunity to hear the gospel. I say that because sometimes, even today, even after we talked about it, it's amazing how many times people are like, Sunday school is that boring, churchy thingy for people who have nothing else to do before they have to come to the church service. I'm like, no, no, start off as, as, as an outreach tool. Anyway, so he begins sharing the gospel with everybody, inviting them to Sunday school. Just explode saying, you got to know this stuff. I, I've been with my whole life angry and wrong. Really, really, you need to learn what God is really like. Kind of cool. 1855. We'll come back to him. Anyway, 1855 is also the same year that the Greaser Act is passed in California. No, 1850s. 1850s, Greasers. 1850s. Yeah, because it's in California, and all these in the 1850s, all these guys with leather jackets and t-shirts. Now, newly American California decides it's got a problem with the vagrancy. And so it passed the, quote, Act to Punish Vagrant, Vagabond, and Dangerous and Suspicious Persons. Such persons should be arrested and fined, but the act itself suggests, hey, why don't you take those vagrants and sends them to chain gangs where they can build roads and do all sorts of things to, to benefit the community. That makes sense, right? No? Why? They're just hanging around not doing anything. And now we're going to put bad people in to teach them how to do bad things better. Well, I suppose you could look at it that way, but I mean, we did chain gangs with guys on balls and chains, you know, up through the 30s and 40s and stuff until you could finally get the... Anyway. Depression kind of killed that because suddenly everybody Work. We're like, oh, why don't we just give that to the to the convicts? No, 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 let's give that to everyone. Anyway, they came out of the Greaser Act because of how they described the vagrants in the act. And they said all persons who are commonly known as greasers or the issue of Spanish and Indian blood who go around armed and are not peaceful and quiet persons like they should be. So when we talk about vagabonds, clearly we're talking about greasers, Mexicans. Exactly. <laughs> So, to be mestizo, to be a combination of, of Spanish and Indian in California is officially a crime. Unless you are the servile, quiet person that such 
such a race should be, right? According to these people, that, you know, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not a hotel maid as you should be, then obviously you are some sort of vagrant, and you should be controlled. Aren't there still more Spanish and Mexicans in California than there are? And even if there, but but even if there weren't, I mean. Then you put in an act, you put in a law. Let's put those greasers on a chain gang. I don't care if there's only two of them. That's just not the way you should be looking at this. I just meant like if there's, a, you know, someday the ants will rise up against the grasshoppers. Arguably, but I would say my bigger problem is that it's a flagrantly racist law. There are no comparable laws about whites going around armed. Because that's what some people say. They're like, well, we're talking specifically about those who are armed. You know, really? Is there anything about whites who go around armed and are not peaceable? Shouldn't they be vagrants too? But they have the right to bear arms. So do these guys, don't they? No, and this is a, no, you make a good point. Because what we're talking about here is legalized racism. Because these people are part of the same law. There is nothing on the books that say that these are not just as much citizens of citizens of California. They are absolutely people, they're absolutely citizens of California, just like the whites. So it's kind of important, because you might say, well, we've been racist for a while with, with uh, against Native Americans. And you go, well, yeah, but they're not Americans. Okay, then against African Americans. You go, well, yeah, but they're not people. They're only like three-fifths three of a person. It's amazing. That okay, we haven't had the Civil War yet. No. That here people they're getting so riled up about slavery, but yet the um, uh, what do you call it? Mestizos? No, what you just said that this is racist. That yeah. racism is building up so badly. Oh yeah. Even in the midst, of, there's people who don't believe there should be slaves. Oh, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of racism even in the abolitionist there movement. Is. Because even in the abolitionist movement, it's there's this idea of a lot, in a lot of people that those poor Africans, us white people, have a responsibility to go handle those poor savages. Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. But go ahead. Well, there's also like and it's there are songs that are like specifically abolitionist songs that that. The point of view seems to be slavery is bad because it takes jobs away from white people. There's that too, yeah. And and slavery is bad because it puts white people in close contact with black people, which is a corrupting influence. Let's send them back to Africa so nobody else gets problems. So there's still a lot of racism. You, you, you got to remember, so much of this is context. I was talking to somebody even just the other day where they were discussing a history of, of homosexuality, and they said even back in ancient Greece it was, it was performed. And I'm like, yeah, you do realize that, that in ancient Greece, if somebody was an effeminate and, and just liked guys, they were considered deviant, and that's bad. But if they were sleeping with guys because they didn't want to pollute themselves with women, i.e. the manly men, well, that's good. Let's go. So it's not it's not as simple as they were pro homosexuality or anti homosexuality. You know, what's the context? Are you sleeping with guys because you're a manly man? And you don't want to pollute yourself with women before battle? Way to go! Are you sleeping with guys because you actually prefer guys? Kind of a nut, are you? Context. So unless you go, well, but we're not racist. Well, we're sort of racist. Well, but we're abolitionists and still racist. You know, it, it's it's it, it's kind of complicated. Now, 1870, they changed that description. They said every person except a California Indian without visible means of living. So like California Indians, they'll be on the reservations and things like that. We're not going to call them vagrants. But if you don't have a visible means of living, then you're a vagrant. You know, well, at least that's more what we would consider a vagrant. But in general, you've already figured out what this law is really about. This is institutionalized racism. This is legalization of racism, uh, even against people who are theoretically full and equal citizens under the law. And this is kind of a big deal. Not because it's so new. It is new. This is the first time you've had legalized racism against people who are full citizens under the law. But the concept is new. This basic idea of saying, you're not us, so you're not cool. By the way, we still do that. I mean, 
Both sides still do that. The extremely conservative people and the extremely liberal people. The people who are racist and the people who aren't racist because they think anything that's black is cool and anything that's white is not because they're not racist. Well, you're still judging ethically like this. We still have a tendency to say, if you're not like this, you are completely uncool. If you're not like this ethnicity, you're completely uncool. Um, we'll talk about fairly soon enough how the Irish came to America and were treated as subhuman. The Irish and the Chinese were treated as, well, it's not like you're people. I mean, you're just cannon fodder. We just tend to say, if you're not us, you're bad. Nowadays, we think of ourselves in light, as enlightened, and I'm like, no, we still have this, this human tendency to say, if you're not Calvinist, you're bad. If you're not Arminian, then you're bad. If you're not from my high school, you're bad. If you're not white, you're bad. If you're not black, you're bad. If you don't really, if you're not me, if you have stars on your belly, then you're not good. If you do have stars, if you don't have stars, if you've got two stars, if you're not me, you're not cool. Question. Yes. California at this time wasn't even involved in the abolitionist movement. Oh, no. They were, it's a non-issue. I, mean, I was going to say, they're 1,500 miles away from the thing. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and I should say, even, you said, you go, well, they're, they're not racist at all. I mean, they've been they've been working well with the Indians and things, haven't they? You, do, you do remember what we talked about with, uh, with the various missions that would beat their Indians into becoming good Catholics. It's like, if we could just beat them enough, because they're savages, all we really need to do is save their souls. We don't need to care about them as people. There are very few people, ironically, in the New World who are more racist than the Spaniards working with the Mexicans. Which is a bizarre concept, because that's just not the way we think about it today. Oh, well. 1857. Speaking of, we hate you if you're not us. The Utah Mormon War. Okay, so the Mormons have left New York, and they've left Ohio, and they left Missouri, and they left Illinois. Why? Well, we apologize. Pardon me? Well, sometimes they get kicked out, sometimes they get run out, sometimes they ran out because what? Well, he was a bad guy. Yeah, because everybody's trying to kill one another. The Mormons are trying to kill non-Mormons, the non-Mormons are trying to kill the Mormons. We keep having wars. Remember when we talked about the Missouri, the Ohio Mormon War, the Missouri Mormon War, the Illinois Mormon War? <laughs> no, because I said it. I said it accurately once. So, in about the safe haven in Utah, they're like nobody else is here. We're going to go live in Utah. Utah's not a state yet. No, it's not. In fact, it's called Deseret. It's this big kingdom over here. Nobody's using it. It's ours, from a word meaning honeybee in the ancient Jaredite language. sense an expeditionary force to find out what's going on, because they're like, you're building a kingdom called Tezzeret. I'm not sure you get to do that. No, it's not a state yet, but it is still federal territory. I don't know that you get to go over there and go, this is a Mormon kingdom. Are you just trying to get ready for another war? So the Mormons go, well, if there's any expeditionary force, we better get ready for another war. Right? It just makes sense. We just keep making wars all over the place. By the way, Mormon website, I was having some fun chasing this down, dismissed all of those wars. They said, all it is is persecution. Quote, there were several Mormon wars. They all arose at the point where local Christian clergies, competing unsuccessfully with Mormonism, sold their congregations and attended backslidden community rabble on the proposition that Mormons were aiming to take over and supersede their God-given inalienable rights as American citizens, enforcing their own morality instead of state and federal law and authority. That's exactly what they're doing, right? And that's that's what Nauvoo was all about. We get to control everything. Even the Mormons broke away from the Mormons in Nauvoo, saying, I think you're doing this too badly. No, no, no. And all these wars are just that the Mormons were successful and the Christians didn't like it. But one thing I appreciate about this website 
is the clear and unapologetic distinction that they make between Mormons and Christians. I'm like, thank you for being honest. I appreciate that. Most Mormons aren't. Anyway, James Buchanan, new president, said, I'm, basically, I'm just sending the troops in to find out what's going on. I just want to know, are you trying to set up your... We, remember Fremont? We got in trouble. He got in trouble because it kind of looked like he was maybe trying to set up California as his own private fiefdom. You don't get to do that. Right? You guys can't go and get to do that. So I, I gave the army specific instructions not to engage them in open conflict. Just find out what's going on there. Which just makes sense, doesn't it? But assuming the worst, the Mormons began attacking the troops in guerrilla raids. No, that's how you avoid fighting, is by starting a fight. It makes no sense. Anyway... But arguably, that did show just how dangerous the Mormons were. They're like, we're going to go and find out just how dangerous the Mormons are. You go, well, they're attacking us, so I'm, I'm arguing they're dangerous. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to start their own kingdom or what, but they just they just shot at the American troops. So I'm, I'm thinking, thinking that's unwise. But they weren't just shooting at the American troops. This is part of the problem. They started attacking other people, saying, ah, oh, they're clearly United States Army spies. The Nauvoo Legion, a group of... of of, of Mormon troops out there, killed 120 settlers bound for California. They slaughtered whole families, men, women, children, took all their stuff, and then blamed the Indians. Ah, the Indians clearly slaughtered them. After a while, they figured out, no, it was you guys. It wasn't, you can't blame the Indians. Uh, in October, they arrested and killed six Californians passing through, and then decided to kill them and steal their money and all their livestock. Uh, they kept going on for about a year where they kept raiding anybody who wasn't Mormon in the region, saying clearly they're the United States spies. And as spies, and since we're at war with the United States, we can kill you and take all your stuff. It's a wonder that people didn't enjoy being neighbors to Mormons. Right? No, that isn't no a mystery. It's a mystery as to why. Yeah. So the army began cracking down, going, okay, we're done with this. So it, 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 we, we had sent out a, a small force just to see what was going on, and it's pretty clear what's going on, and we're going to stop it. So we're going to send out a much larger force now and put an end to all this. The Mormons finally agreed to turn over the murderers from the Nauvoo Legion. They're like, okay, it was all the Nauvoo Legion. They had no official sanction. Yes, they did. We have a paper trail where they had official sanction. There's no official sanction. We'll turn them over to a military court, and we will support a non-Mormon as territorial governor of Utah, and we'll stop calling it desert. How about that? The United States Army goes, great, we'll drop all the charges other than that, and we'll just go fight the Sioux, which we're kind of doing anyway, and we need to... We're already out here, and we've diverted much-needed cavalry to fight you guys, and so now we want to go fight the Sioux. So it's a win-win thing. We're just going to end all this. 1896, Utah finally becomes the United States state, right? After the new Mormon president, Wilford Woodruff, assured the United States government that Mormons were not and had never been polygamists. It's a horrible, horrible lie. Never happened. I thought he just had a revelation that we shouldn't have, we shouldn't be polygamy anymore. And the same Depends on who you're asking. If you ask, if you ask the Mormon church at the time, yes, Woodruff explained to the church that God no longer wanted them to be polygamists. The letter he wrote to the United States government said, we have never practiced polygamy. Mm -hmm. I don't know where this malicious rumor came. It never happened. You just read the Book of Mormon, it happened, so I don't... Actually, the Book of Mormon specifically says that polygamy is bad. Really? Yeah. It says that uh, David and Solomon were both cursed because they had practiced polygamy. It's the Doctrine and Covenants that said that Polygamy is crucially important. In fact, David and Solomon were blessed because they were polygamous. No, I'm not kidding. I mean, there's no. you set these two sets of verses next to each other, and you go 180 degrees. Both mention David and Solomon, both talking about their polygamy. One says that's why they were cursed. One says that's why they were blessed. Contradiction is a funny thing within the Mormon church. Anyway, same year, a guy named Jeremiah Lanford started a prayer meeting. Um, he's a Dutch Reformed businessman. So everybody say, yay, <laughs> in New York. And he felt called to be a missionary, which is a little bit of a problem, because he wasn't a very good missionary. He's quiet. He's introverted. He's not a good preacher. He doesn't really know that much about Scripture to be able to, to teach it.
but he felt called to be a missionary. So what do you do? It's like, I'm not a very good people person. I'm not, a very, not very outgoing. I wouldn't want to be on the street corner. I can't preach very well. I don't feel comfortable teaching the Bible. Yeah, but I want to be a missionary. What? You hire somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so you join up with the other guy we talked about last week because he's a people person but not an administrator. Yeah, yeah that's right. Dude, David Livingston. Yeah. Hang with Jeremiah Lanfear. Yeah. <laughs> that would have actually been a really good combo. Anyway, no, Jeremiah goes, I really am not good at much of any of that kind of stuff. So, he's like, I'm just going to start a small prayer meeting. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to invite people. Wednesdays at noon, we'll be out in an hour. Which part of New York? Um, is it the no, 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 New York oh, City, New York City, downtown New York. I see what you're saying. Uh, no, New York City. He's like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hand out a pamphlet to businessmen saying, if you can even come for five minutes, we're just gonna do this as an open house. We'll maybe sing some songs. It's, it's, it's. If you can come for the whole hour, that's great. If you can't come, if you can only come for a little bit, it's all right. We'll design it that way. It is. It's a perfect man church. Just come and pray, and then you can leave. You know, we'll have a sandwich. Um, nobody came at twelve thirty. Is coming. It starts at noon, and, and for the first half an hour, he's just sitting there all by himself, praying. Twelve thirty. Finally, somebody did finally show up. By the time one o'clock rolls around, there are six guys sitting there praying, which is which is great. First half an hour, he's really getting a little antsy. You know, two of them at twelve thirty. It's good. It's good. The next week he had 40 people. And they said, you know what? It's not enough just to pray on Wednesdays. Let's pray every day. Can the 40 of us pray every day? Like, sure, okay. Within six months they had 10,000 men praying every day at noon in New York City. Businesses, most businesses in New York closed at noon. Most businesses that you would go to closed at noon for prayer. And when customers, I was even reading about a customer that, it's like, why are you closing? He's like, it's a prayer meeting. You want to come? So they, they used the fact that some people didn't know about the prayer meeting as a way to share about the prayer meeting. Um, it's an amazing time in history because you had um, people being converted as their ships came into the docks in New York. They talked about uh, this great conflagration of the Holy Spirit. You could feel it as you entered the harbor. You had... Um, as you entered the harbor, there's this one classic time where a bunch of guys were on the prow of the ship praying, and their non-Christian shipmates came and started laughing at them and making fun of them, and then knelt down and prayed for forgiveness for being such jerks about it, because they saw how devout the guys were, and accepted Christ. I mean, just, if there were, like, one story, you might go, right, that's a, no, story after story after story where you say, New York City, that hotbed of Christianity, where, uh, where clearly God was being praised by everybody. Um, there was an economic crash that year where thousands of people lost their jobs. 10,000 people were out of work in the span of like a month and a half. Uh, just suddenly hit the streets. Which actually drove more people to prayer. Instead of saying, oh, this horrible thing happened, where is God? They said, this horrible thing happened, I need to find God. And so... So people joined with him in prayer. Within eight months of the start of the meetings, 50,000 people accepted Christ of New York's 800,000 citizens. Multiple prayer meetings started being held in Pittsburgh and Washington and Chicago, all across the country. At, at its height, 50,000 people were coming to know the Lord every week nationally. This amazing move. Go, booyah! An amazing move of God. At a prayer meeting in South Carolina, the local doctor ended it, saying, okay, we got to go home to dinner. Thank you guys very much for being here. And nobody left. They still stayed till the next morning. They, they wouldn't stop praying. At a large meeting in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a woman requested prayer for her husband's salvation. And across the room, a man cried out, pray for me, I'm that man. She didn't even know that he was at the prayer meeting. I mean, there's dozens of stories like that where, where God was moving across the country hugely, amazingly. D.L. Moody saw a Sunday school attendance soar at 1,500 people every week at a Sunday school class. Can you imagine somebody actually wanting to go to Sunday school? And in 1857, planted a new, a new church on Illinois Street in Chicago. It became so popular that that was one of the first things that President-elect Abraham Lincoln did was go and teach one Sunday at the Sunday school class, D.L. Moody's Sunday school class in Chicago before he went off to Washington. 
because he's like, nope, this, this is this is the big thing going in Illinois right now. This DL Moody's Sunday school class. The church itself, the building itself, burned down in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, and then they they immediately rebuilt it. Like three months later, it's rebuilt and up and running as the Chicago Avenue Church. But eventually, it was rebuilt again and rechristened Moody Church in DL's honor after he died. So go to Moody Church. I know the sign says Moody Memorial Church, but it's it's actually Moody Church. So if you're ever in Chicago, go check that out. It's still there. Anyway, by the time 1860 rolled around, over one million people had accepted Christ and a million other people had rededicated their lives to Christ in the United States in three years. So that's like 7% of the nation's population all on fire for Christ because one quiet man said, well, I can pray. Maybe I can have a small Bible study. Maybe I can do that. I'm not a big public speaker. I'm not a great organizer. I just feel like I should be a missionary. Which leads me to, I can't help but say, what can you do? Because most of us say, I, I can't picture me doing anything massively big. I, I couldn't do some sort of big rally. I couldn't do some sort of... If you haven't picked up on it yet, I am not a big fan of big rallies. Statistically, they stink as outreach things. Because you go, well, but 300 people came to know the Lord. And you go, right, and a year later, 12 of them are actually doing anything with it. This is Big rallies tend to be a joke. They're splashy. They're impressive. They don't change lives. <coughs> but a little prayer meeting that you say, I'm just going to ask people if they'll come, millions of people, two million people on fire for Christ that three years ago worked. Because somebody said, I can ask people to pray. You're surrounded by people on a daily basis that you can do something with. Do you understand why we do our three or one challenge going, could you could you just talk to somebody? Could you invest in a handful of people? Could you could you talk to at least somebody every week? Could you what can you do? There is a statue of Jeremiah Lanfear sitting outside of uh, the American Bible Society offices in New York. With him just, I love the statue. It's not a very impressive, it's just him sitting on a, on a park bench with his hand open going, want to join me? Very few New Yorkers have any clue who he is or why that statue is there. Like this woman coming in and working on it like her makeup. No clue who she's sitting by at all. And to be honest, from what I know about Jeremiah Lanthier, I wouldn't bother him at all. Would not bother him at all. He is Elisha to, to say other men's Elijah. So it's like, I don't care. I'm just trying to help. It was called the Layman's Prayer Revival because it was led by doctors and lawyers and businessmen and things, not by pastors. Amazingly powerful. Nothing's going to stop this juggernaut. I mean, what could possibly happen? 1860, it's just on fire. What could possibly happen to shoot down the work of God? New York. <laughs> no, well, no, no, New York is kicking right now. So, oh, golly, that's right. There's a whole civil war thing coming in there. Oh, well, nothing like killing everybody to stop your revival. Anyway, I will say this. As a basis for comparison, it would be like if today, starting today, 22 million Americans became just ragingly active Christians between now and 2019. 7% of the population just went bananas for Christ. Bear in mind, it's an interesting number, 7%, because a lot of statistics suggest that's how many people the American church has lost since 2009. That we've actually had a 7% decline, that 7% of the American population has left the church and been less interested in Christ in the last seven years. Wouldn't it be great if we actually saw that many come back or even... Even if they didn't come back, like new people being... But wouldn't it be great to see the church growing in, in enthusiasm? But that would require that the church do something, and we're perfectly fine with hiring revivalists who could just maybe do a big, splashy meeting, please. Anyway, 1858, Great Stink. i got to talk about this because it's a period called the Great Stink. When British people come up with the phrase, the Great Stink, you got to comment on this. London is a crazy, stinking place. It's really bad. By the mid-19th century, the wooden sewer pipes... How smart is that, by the way? Wooden sewer pipes. 
They'd run it. There were multiple collapsed sewers in the streets, so there were whole, multiple places in downtown London where there's a big sign going, don't step here, it's actually a cesspool. Um, the Thames had become this breeding ground for really nasty stuff. Part of that's due to flush toilets. Because everybody, everybody's got this newfangled flush toilet, which is great, and it makes your house more sanitary. But it means instead of you taking your waste and getting rid of it because it was your responsibility, now you're flushing everything into an extremely inadequate sewer system. So there's a lot of junk being flushed into one massive sewer system. So multiple cholera and typhoid epidemics had taken out 30,000 people in London alone in the last decade. Nasty, nasty. And people genuinely considered the Thames to be poisonous. Because it was. It was horribly poisonous. It was filled with human waste. There, there were always fish and dead critters floating on the surface of the Thames at this time. Uh, it just was commonplace. Um, and this cocktail of bacteria has been brewing for centuries. At this point in history, the Thames was generally considered the most toxic, polluted place on the planet. The river going through London. I've read that people considered like if you fell into the river, that was pretty much Yes, that's what I was going to say. That's where it's going to go next. People thought this is death if you touch this thing. Although even worse than the Thames itself, what? That's right. Bitten by a radioactive spider, touched the Thames. Not the same, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to medical science of the day, most people thought that the problem was the air, not the water. Because there's this theory, of, this miasma theory, that says that you get sick because of bad air, which is what miasma means, not because of, like, germs. That's, that's a germ. Germ. That's cukey. Anyway. So they kept drinking it and being poisoned by it constantly. Anyway, 
double that. Let's build that. Smart guy, smart guy. On the plus side, one of the things that this did do was prove physician John Snow's assertion that nobody believed, everybody thought he was kooky, that maybe cholera came from the water and all the bacteria in the water and not from breathing some sort of invisible miasma. I think there's this stuff called germs, and I think that's what's making us sick. Like, You're kooky! They cleaned up the water and everybody got better, and they're like, oh, maybe he's not kooky! Which created this whole science of epidemiology. Of let's figure out what actually makes everybody sick. How about that? Yeah? Clean up the water, wouldn't that clean up the air? So can they just attribute it to that? Sure. Although they, Why was that a moment where they figured it out? Because it was so clearly, like, immediately cleaning up the water made everything better. Um, and I, I, to a lot of them, to a lot of people, they really thought that the miasma had nothing to do with the water. It's not the foul air coming from the water. It's, there's just something in the air. But I can't stand this smell either. Um, so... Once you actually clean up the water, and he's like, see, look, this caused that. This caused this. This caused the smell. This caused the, the, the sickness. This caused that. And I'm like, oh. oh. Unfortunately, he was dead by then. He died. The water is ultimately sorts, right? Exactly. He, unfortunately, Jon Snow was dead by the time they figured that out. So he died. Everybody going, you know, germs. Coke. Wait, no, he's right. Anyway. It's like Cassandra. It's like all these different people. Yes. What's interesting is Bajorjet's inspiration in part came from the city of Chicago. Woot, because Chicago knows what they're doing. Chicago had already built the nation's first modern sewer and storm drainage system. Um, Mid-19th century, Chicago is a nightmare. Downtown streets are thick, standing soup. Welcome to the 19th century. I mean, really nice, and really PBS specials and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Horror. Anyway, there's even a popular Chicago joke at the time that uh, Chicago Magazine made into a comic. I love this. Guy sees the guy down here, comes up to me, you need some help, sir? No, 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 thank you. I'll have a good horse under me. <laughs> and you see this guy sinking down into the poopiness. So yeah, nasty stuff. Cholera epidemic in 1854 forced the city to go, okay, we've got to do something. I mean, we're just, we lost... 7% of our, of our population in a year's time. According to the 1854 Chicago Tribune, the people died at the rate of 60 per day, and the death cart was seen continuing in the streets. On Friday and Saturday, the 18th and 9th, or 8th and 9th of July, the streets seemed full of hearses and coffins, and on Sunday, there's this grand exodus of many hundreds of people fleeing the city. That's Chicago in 1855. So, engineer Ellis Chesborough came up with the idea of digging sewer tunnels under the city that allowed rainwater to wash out the sewer tunnels. It's like, we make sewer tunnels and we make them storm drains so that any good storm washes the sewage out. So it never has standing sewage. How about them apples? How does that work for you? Stinking brilliant is what this is. Pouring everything into the Chicago River. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we're in trouble for it. I'm aware of that. Yeah. But it required physically reversing the course of the Chicago River, because it was pouring everything into Lake Michigan, which isn't cool, because that's the source of drinking water. Anyway. So like, whoa, 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 that's not good. So they reversed it, now poured it into the Illinois River and down to St. Louis. And St. Louis went, hey! <laughs> Chicago said, I don't care, I'm Chicago, deal. I don't know if you can picture Chicago taking that out of <laughs> it. also required manually lifting the city, because, it, because the city was actually built under the Lake Michigan waterline. And so... You had to lift the city four to, 50, to four to fourteen feet at various points. Like Lake Street was lifted fourteen feet, so that they could dig under. So they got they got like manual jacks and lifted whole buildings. In fact, most businesses didn't even stop being a business. Most ho like grand hotels, people were still living in the hotel and just they just lifted a little bit every day. One just famous thing where one guy just noticed that it was being lifted because he's like, are these stairs getting steeper to get into? The, in, into his hotel. In, in Seattle, I mean, they had from sewer stuff and they had a fire and everything. And um, they had, it was, the, they had to build the road up, like mm -hmm. one story. So in order for you to go into the shop, you had to go down a ladder into the shop, get your stuff, and carry your groceries back up the ladder to your cart. Well, in Chicago today, there's still places where the first floor is actually underground. Mm -hmm. Second floor is what you go into. And they have that in Seattle. Actually, 
there are tunnels under New York, there are tunnels under Seattle, there are tunnels under uh, Chicago, there are tunnels under Los Angeles, there are tunnels under Cincinnati. There's a number of cities that have cities underneath them. It's really freaky, actually. Anyway, today, Chicago has a phenomenally well-maintained sewer system with pipes, some pipes that are like 30 feet in diameter. But this is not what you normally think of when you picture going down into the sewers. You go, that's a Chicago sewer tunnel. So it's like, Chicago got this figured out. Anyway, yes, we they did, they, they fixed things as time went on, but it was kind of not, it was kind of a brilliant idea at the time. 1859, Japan allows the first missionaries in centuries to come to Japan. The Tokugawa shogun, remember we talked about them. They're starting to lose power because people are like, I don't think you understand how to deal with foreigners, and the nobles are gaining power as the shogun is is waning. 1858, they install a guy named Inosuke as their tairo, their uh, their, their chief elder is kind of like a prime minister. And Naosuke favored connection with the West. He's like, we need to be connected to them so that we know how to deal with them. It's self-protection. We, we need to understand all that. So in 1859, they opened the ports of Nagasaki and Hakodate and Yokohama to um, admit foreigners. So let's do this as a test case. Including for the first time since the 1620s, Christian missionaries, which is which is cool, right? Um, amazingly, public opinion didn't really appreciate that. And so uh, they did a lot of assassinations at the time. It was fairly common for foreigners to get hacked to pieces on the streets by the Tokugawa samurai. When you think of samurai, you tend to think of very noble people, and they were very noble people. So understand the concept of nobility is different in Japan than it would be, say, in England. You go, oh, they're like knights. Yeah, sort of. Then again, knights were also kind of like armed thugs. So... Uh, but their idea of nobility is do what you actually believe is philosophically right, which means hacking people, literally hacking them to pieces on the streets. So a Russian sailor that was hacked and his pieces were left on the streets and they didn't allow anybody to clean them up because they wanted to scare all the foreigners and things. They are averaging about one hacked up person publicly per, per month. 1860, Naosuke was himself killed by a bunch of frustrated Tokugawa samurai. Um, and pup and popular poets actually praised that, saying, God, he's dead. Is it because he was allowing foreigners in? Yeah, in large part. They didn't like that, they didn't like that he was standing against a lot of the, the decisions of the Tokugawa uh, shogunate. So like I said, yeah, poets are writing poetry about how good it is that he'd been murdered. So, anyway, kind of a hard environment to be a missionary, if you can imagine, uh, in Japan at this time, because Christianity is technically still illegal in Japan. So, you can be a missionary, you can be a foreigner, but you can't try to establish a church or make any converts. You can preach Christianity, you just can't try to make anybody Christian, and you can't establish a church, because Christianity is illegal. Yeah, baby steps. So, like with so many closed countries, missionaries had to find some other way to be in the, in, 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 in the country and preach the gospel. So, there's a Dutch reform, missionary. We don't go back. Who came to Nagasaki and taught English and German to the retainers of the local daimyo, the local lord. Within a few years, he's teaching hundreds of these retainers. And not just about languages, about foreign customs, about medicine, about science, etc. 1869, he's appointed to teach at what would become the Tokyo Imperial University, became the educational advisor to the Meiji government, starts becoming extremely powerful and extremely popular. That's him right there. Yeah, that's his son. When the ban on Christianity was finally lifted in 1873, he'd already been there for 14 years and, was, and had already been an extremely important person for the last four. He was positioned to share the gospel and to be very prominent and very public. So... Praise God. American uh, James Hepburn settled in Yokohama, another port city. He's a Presbyterian doctor from Pennsylvania, and he became the honorary physician to American Council Townsend Harris, who we talked about last time as being like the most 1800s-y looking 1800s guy you'll ever see. <laughs> but he also maintained a private clinic where he gave free medical aid to the, to the local Japanese. How do you think that went over? You would think so, except that the Tokugawa samurai tended to kill anybody who went and made use of the clinic. Because he's a foreigner, and foreigners are all bad. 
Okay, so. So if you got well, you were killed. There's a good chance, yeah. So a lot of people didn't go to this clinic and it kind of fizzled after a while. But to aid in his learning of Japanese, Hepburn created his own dictionary using his own romanization of the language, his own Latin letters, American letters, to write Japanese. Today, the Hepburn romanization, as it's called, still remains the most widely used Latinization of Japanese. It's not the official one, because the Japanese came up with their own official romanization that nobody uses. But everybody uses the one he did. So he's still famous as being the one that, if you study Japanese, you'll hear about the Hepburn romanization that people still use. God uses people, and even some of the hard things, in really good ways. Anyway, that same year, Darwin published his Origin of Species, which I think was important, so it's worth talking about. He grew up as, as a wealthy Unitarian in England. Um, didn't really like much of his studies. Just kind of, he really pretty much just wanted to party and, and be goofy. He even trained to be a parish priest at the Anglican Church. Because he didn't want to be a, uh, he didn't want to be in the Unitarian Church. He didn't really believe what the Anglicans believed, but at least it was something different. I don't know. None of it really jazzed him very much until he ran into biology and he started reading about these scientific travels where people would travel around and learn about the fauna and flora of various places around the world. That basically National Geographic. He's just like, oh, that's interesting. That I could do. So 1831, he signed on aboard the HMS Beagle for what was supposed to be a two-year trip around the world, uh, charting coasts, and they said, and you can be our resident naturalist where you can be examining, cataloging flora and fauna every place we go. It ended up being five years long, but it was supposed to be a two-year, three-hour tour. It was supposed to be two years, ended up being five. But they went all over the place. But for instance, he went to the Galapagos Islands, and he saw all this variation in things, especially even in the beaks of finches. He's like, these are all technically the same kind of bird, but they all have different beaks, they all have different heads. They must have evolved from a common ancestor, but each evolved very distinctly. As it turns out, he got back to, to England and people, actually some of those are pinches, some of those are something else, but, but the concept is still sound, where he's just like, you know, they're, they're the same, but different. I've got to think that there was a common ancestor. Wait, wait, wait. So he wasn't actually trained in biology or No, he studied it in the university, but he was, he was not... What you would call a qualified naturalist. Okay. So he, they, he so was, they should go on the boat as their naturalist. Yeah. Probably because it was cheaper. <laughs> and because my guess is he's like, oh, I'm done with college. Yeah. Learned about all. I'm a junior. I've learned everything they can teach me. That kind of stuff. But no, he didn't. Uh, he didn't have some of the degrees that you would. Anyway. Then again, he also believed that when you look at things like the creation of the Galapagos Islands, clearly the Earth's crust is expanding, and so the Earth's diameter is expanding in girth every year. No, it's not. Eh. Again, maybe not the best naturalist in the world. But I need to clarify a couple things here. He didn't invent the concept of evolution. So please don't think that Darwin invented the idea of evolution. Not true. Number two, modern schools don't propose Darwinian evolution. So if you're one of these people that sit there and go, well, it's creationism versus Darwinism. You go, okay, nobody believes Darwinism anymore. It's just not where they're going. And he's not the one that came up with it. Um, so, first of all, there are people like Lamarck who had been teaching evolution for decades. I mean, there are people back in ancient Greece that said, you know, it looks like maybe animals change. The difference is that Lamarck had argued that the structure of the creatures had evolved slowly over generations, that one giraffe tried to stretch its neck to reach the leaves, and so its son had a longer neck, and he tried to stretch his neck to reach the leaves, and so his son had a longer neck. And so on and so on. And everybody goes, that's silly. Whereas Darwin said, oh, no, 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 they're existing populations. They're short-necked giraffes and long-necked giraffes. It's just that the long-necked giraffes could reach the leaves, and the short-necked giraffes couldn't and starved. So long-necked giraffes tended to have long-necked giraffe babies. Natural selection, right? Of existing populations. Um, as many people have commented, it's the origin of species, not the origin of life. He was not in his book originally trying to argue everything started as protozoa and built itself up to this. He was arguing for natural selection and seeing how populations shift. And he wasn't even the only one saying it. There was another guy, Alfred Russell Wallace, did it at the exact same time, had almost the exact same theory. And so they co-published it with each other, it's just that people don't remember Wallace. We don't call it Walsinianism, we call it Darwinism. 
probably because he was rabidly anti-religious. He was pro-spiritualist, anti-religious, whereas Darwin made it extremely clear very early on. He said that, quote, life with its several powers, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or, or into one, from so simple beginning, endless forms, must beautiful and most wonderful have been, and our being evolved. So he's like, oh, no. God did this. I want to be very clear. In fact, I purposely went and found myself years ago the second edition to The Origin of Species. Because in the second edition of The Origin of Species, he multiple times says, I'm really sorry for the firestorm that this created. I've never said that it wasn't God. I've said the whole time that it's God. I, I don't know who said that I said it wasn't God. Clearly God is behind all of this. He even argued in his journals that species variation proved evolution. But species similarities prove that there must be, quote, one hand that has surely worked throughout the universe, unquote. It's like, oh, that I see multiple different versions of finches here suggests evolution. That we have finches in, in Britain and finches in the Galapagos on the other side of the planet? Oh, clearly God. Clearly God. You don't normally think of Darwin that way, but it's kind of important to think of Darwin that way. Second, what most modern schools preach is not Darwinism as such. Um, it's very, very different. Darwin originally argued for one, for a pure natural selection, what economist Herbert Spencer referred to as survival of the fittest when he read the book. So that's not a Darwinian phrase, that's a Spencer phrase. And he was talking about economics. Spencer's like, oh, much like you see a survival of the fittest in the natural world, according to Darwin, we see that in the economic world. If you're a bad businessman, your business will fail. And stronger, healthier businesses will survive. Kind of like what Darwin says about the finches. Anyway, so he's talking about existing populations, and modern evolution discusses that primarily as part of what we might call microevolution, structural shifts due to population shifts. As the short neck giraffes die off, you have more long neck giraffe babies. That just makes sense. You didn't actually change that genome as such. What you're seeing is it's just this genome wins out over that one. But then modern evolution tends to extend this toward microevolution, too, where you do get this genetic shift in an almost Lamarckian way of saying, no, no, the genome itself shifts over time to match its environment. Just not in that silly Lamarckian way. It happens over millions of years. It's not just a longer version of what Lamarck said. But that also adds to it Gregor Mendel's understanding of genetic inheritance, which Darwin had no concept of. They're like, oh, you realize that generations pass on to their offspring certain codifiable traits. You can see what happens. I don't care whether you're talking about bean plants or giraffes. And also, the idea that there's mutations that happen. It's just funky, weird stuff. And also, this weird, messy, branching evolutionary theory of people like George Gaylord Simpson, who said, you do realize that there's more than natural selection going on here. Because there's a lot of mutation going on. There's a lot of stuff where you go, well, that branch isn't even remotely fitter than the other one. And yet, this is the one that kept going on. I don't know why this happened. There's more to it than just natural selection. And also something called punctuated equilibrium. Ever, ever hear that? Okay, because far from the original accepted idea that there's just these branches and everything just keeps changing little by little over millions and millions of years and subtle changes that happen little by little by little, you can't even see it happen. It's not what the fossil record, record bears out. The more we look at it, we go, actually, no. Populations tend to proceed in perfectly normal ways and then suddenly branch off and become something else and then suddenly branch off and become something else. Which is which makes much more sense to the fossil record, but then that whole gradual change over millions and millions of years, you know, well, no, that doesn't happen. So it's complicated. Interestingly, Charles Darwin wrote as he got older about how his understanding of evolution brought about a gradual conversion from Christianity to agnosticism. He didn't start off as agnostic. But he said, I, I, I feel compelled to look at, at to a first cause, God, having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man, and I deserve to be called a theist. It's, I, I, I started with this whole idea of God. This conclusion was strong in my mind about the time, as, I can, as far as I can remember, when I wrote The Origin of Species. And it's <laughs> since that time, that has been very gradually, with many fluctuations, becoming weaker. But then arises the doubt. Can the mind of man, which has, as I fully believe, been developed from a mind as low as that possessed by the lowest animal, be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions. Yes, I believe there's God. And yet, can I trust that somebody who's evolved from a lower species really understands what that even means? Can I trust our judgment on that sort of thing? 
I can't pretend to throw the least light on such abstruse problems. The mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble by us, and I, for one, must be content to remain an agnostic. The more I understand that we are just evolved from lower beings, the more I have to say, I don't know that I can trust this in, in our theology. I don't even know that there is a God. I just don't know. Yeah. So it's not just dependent on our own ability and, our, and what makes the most sense to us, right? Which is interesting because then he adds what amounts to a little bit of a warning. Because he says, a man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best one. A dog acts in this manner. If you don't believe that there is a personal, intelligent, involved creator, logically, I can't see how you would have any morality other than what makes the most sense to you. Have we found that to be the case? And the more we're, we're doing exactly that. So without intending it, Darwin ended up ushering in a whole new way of looking at the world around us on many fronts. First off, you got Spencer's economic survival of the fittest, this creation of social Darwinism, that the fittest people tend to survive, that those who are strong will naturally dominate those who are weak, which is exactly, which is exactly what Marx is saying, right? What were we going to say? And should, according to Well, Karl Marx is saying all of history is basically just economic and political exploitation of the stronger social class, of the weaker social class, whichever that is. Which is why the, the proletariat needs to rise up and be the stronger social class. Isn't that exactly what he's been preaching? This makes total sense to those people, those intellectuals that, that like Marx. And Nietzsche argued that evolution has shown, has shown that apparently we don't need God. There is no God. And nature itself just breeds the strongest to survive which means that it is morally good for the strong to devour the weak. That's what they were bred for. Lions should eat sheep. Wolves should eat sheep. Sheep should be fine with them because they're sheep. It is morally wrong to ask a sheep to lead. Strong people who, who try to help the weak are doing a disservice to nature. Yes, Hitler loved Nietzsche. This is Hitler looking at busted Nietzsche. Hitler loved Nietzsche. And this whole idea that we could breed the Ubermensch, the, the, the Overman, the Superman. Plus, the classic one that most of us are familiar with, the scientific community broke apart because of Darwin's claims. Evolutionism, not evolution, evolutionism, the dogma that erupted from evolution, became the new deism in terms of being this litmus test between the people who were hold on to that, that traditional Christianity and the people who are cool enough to say, we don't need God. It's a lot cooler if we're just doing it ourselves. Right? Because that's what we've been doing with you know, Voltaire. That's what we've been doing with deism for a while there. Now we're embracing this rationalistic, materialistic prospect that there is no God out there. How should an intellectually respected and decidedly Christian university like something like Princeton respond? You get some universities that start saying, no, we're going to absolutely toe the line and take a hardline Christian perspective. We are a Christian university. We're Bob Jones, by golly. We're Christian. And other universities that say, what kind of university, what kind of a place of learning would we be if we ignored clear science? No. We're going to support evolution because it's clearly good science. There is no God. Even Darwin said, oh golly, even Darwin said there was a God when he started all this. But you get this dividing line. Up until this point, in general, almost all universities were Christian universities. Now suddenly you have Christian universities and secular universities, in large part due to how they responded to the concept of evolution. Intellectuals thus are turning their backs on God. You have Nietzsche's famous quote, God is dead. We've killed him. We don't need God. We, it's, it's good. It's good. That we've killed God. History uh, will be will will be will laud the fact that we got rid of this concept. Stephen Hawking nowadays says one can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. Intellectuals don't need God, and it all kind of starts at this point. Recently, there's a revamped. Remember the old show Cosmos with Carl Sagan? There's been a revamped version of it with Neil deGrasse Tyson, 
and he argued that evolution is an absolute and undeniable fact. It, it absolutely happened. And then he adds an interesting spiritual spin. Accepting our kinship with life on Earth is not only solid science, in my view, it's also a soaring spiritual experience. Which, because everybody wants a spiritual experience. Oh, there's a lot of people in this world that are spiritual. They're just, you know, not religious. They don't believe in a God. They believe in communing with something bigger than themselves. Which arguably colors a scientific opinion, right? Just like any good creationist colors their scientific opinion. Let's be fair. I'm not trying to attack evolution as a concept. I'm talking about the dangers of the evolutionism theology that rose from this. Especially given the fact that he's actually got a theology. God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. So it's like, you've got an axe to grind, right? And, and evolution has given you a grinding stone for your axe. So it kind of depends on your use of terms as to whether or not it's, it's a fact or not. It's a fact if what you mean is that it's a factual question that should be established by factual data. Yes, it's, it's factual. It's not a fact if by that you mean it's no longer something that can be debated or that's worth being tested. In fact, that's what the original... Cosmos said, Carl Sagan said, 900 years ago when it came out, evolution is not a theory, it's a fact. Um, but from a purely scientific standpoint, it's not even technically a theory. You really want to be obnoxious about it. Scientific method says you, 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 you decide on you have observations, you decide on a hypothesis, you test it under laboratory conditions, you establish it as a working theory, test that multiple times, eventually consider it a law, which you still keep testing and testing, and testing, right? Which technically means that evolution is an untested, possibly untestable, hypothesis. Not even a theory. Now, I say that, and people always go, right, we don't know that it's true. That's not even remotely what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that it's true. What I'm saying is, is use your words carefully. It is an untested, possibly untestable, hypothesis that might be absolutely, completely true. You just can't I don't want Christians who are very conservative and very creationist to say, well, if it's an untestable hypothesis, then that means, yeah, it's not even, it's not true. It's not what that means. And I certainly don't want non-Christian evolutionists like Tyson saying, right, it's an undeniable fact. Um, no. Anyway, problem is when you get good scientists. So you're saying that, so with like, evolution, mm -hmm. you're saying, like, we have all these, like, Facts or things that people are drawing into, but we haven't, like, we can't really run a test saying, like, okay, let's, this is evolution happening right now. It, it depends on what you mean by, again, your terms. It, it's, it's hard for us to turn an okapi into a giraffe in laboratory conditions to, to do this kind of species macroevolution kind of thing. We see all sorts of population shifts. There's all sorts of different things that we can do with for lack of a better term, microevolution in, in, in laboratory conditions. But a lot of the stuff, there's an inherent scientific danger. And again, please understand, I'm not saying that this means evolution didn't happen. But there's an inherent scientific problem with saying we observe the fossil record and it suggests to us that there's evolution and we prove it by observing the fossil record. Scientifically, logically, there's a problem with doing that that way. By the way, Christians do this all the time. We just do it with Bible verses. Clearly, this verse says such and such. Well, how do you know that? Look at the verse. Oh, that's sort of intellectual incest humans do all the time. Problem is when good scientists think like bad theologians. Anytime that we turn something spiritual and say that because it's spiritual, anybody who questions it must be a heretic. I don't care whether you're a Catholic, whether you're a Baptist, whether you're an agnostic scientist, anytime that you say, this means something to me, so it hurts me emotionally that you might disagree with it. By definition, you're bad science. By definition, you've lost your objectivity, and you are dangerous. You need to pull back and rethink that. Stephen Hawking was like, oh, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. We have just this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and brother, I'm extremely grateful. It's a good thing that there is no God. Tyson says, the more I learn about the universe, the less convinced I am that there's any sort of benevolent force out there that has anything to do with it at all. It is a theology. You have to understand, it is a theology. There's faith. There's faith based on 
an understanding of the existence of God. There's faith on what that means about how we should interact with the universe around us. Anytime we do that by saying anything that's different than me, we can just shut down. It's dangerous. We need to avoid doing that. But with this, in particular, with evolutionism, we inflate and deflate the wrong bits about reality. When we say we're nothing but specks floating on a speck in an infinite universe that God doesn't care about, or there is no God. But then turn around and argue that that means that we have to be the moral center of our own universe. Our strongest natural impulses are what is right and what is good. If people feel, if enough people feel X is true, then X must be true. We say God doesn't care about us, so we have to care about ourselves. We have to be the center of everything. You go, that is the exact opposite of what Christianity is trying to say. No, God cares desperately about you, and you cannot be the center of everything. But an amazing number of us get that wrong. A lot of that comes straight out of this evolutionism mindset. Not out of evolution, but out of evolutionism. Same year, John Brown led a raid on Harper's Ferry, arguably kicking off the last domino that starts the Civil War. I want you to think about this moment in history, what a pivot point this is. So many people drawing a line between us and them. If you're not us, you're bad. If you're a greaser, if you are not Japanese, if you're a Christian or if you're a, a Darwinist, if you're from the South or you're from the North, I hate you. That never leads healthy places. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. That even though you are a very particular God, you are a very clear speaking God about what you genuinely wish from us and what you genuinely wish that we don't do. Lord, I thank you that you are a loving God. You're not a God full of hate and wrath. You're not a God that says, if you're not me, I hate you. I thank you that you're a God that says, if you're not with me, I long for you. My heart breaks for you, and I wish to draw you to be with me. Lord, I pray, help us to draw fewer battle lines, build fewer walls, and instead see people dangling from that precipice and run to help them. Even, even if the only thing we can think of doing is to say, maybe I could start a prayer meeting. Help us, Lord, to have your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, absolutely, thank you.